If you have your Bibles, open them to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. It's a new It's a new year. Are you ready for the new you? That's the question from the commercials. How many of you hate New Year's resolutions? How many of you have already broken your New Year's resolution? How many of you no longer make New Year's resolutions because you've always broken your New Year's resolutions by this point of the year? Yes. That's a common phenomenon. And if that's you, let me insert a, a new phrase into your vocabulary that actually might kind of rekindle the flame of the spirit of resolution without all the ineffectiveness. The phrase is keystone habit. You ever heard of keystone habits? A keystone habit is a social scientific phenomenon that is some behavior, some habit that we participate in that has the power to unlock keystone, unlock other habits and behaviors in our life and kind of set a, a cascade, a cascading effect of positivity, as it were. And so probably, what, 30 years ago now, social scientists and psychologists kind of put their heads together and did a bunch of studies throughout the nation to say, okay, for a family, if you want your kids to grow up to be healthy members of society, to get into a good college or whatever it is, is the dream for your children, what is the, the one best thing a family can do? Right, is it tutoring? Is it SAT prep? Is it private schooling? Is it the neighborhoods you live in? Right, what, is, what is the one thing a family can do to ensure long-term success for their children? What's the keystone habit for families? And do you remember what it was? They, de they determined that a keystone habit for a family was eating dinner together a few times a week. That became a keystone habit. They found out that families who ate dinner together built stronger relationships with their children, had more candid conversations, had more connection into the lives of their kids, built more relationships where trust and wisdom could be passed, and it cascaded to a place that the most successful children in the United States growing up was correlated with the families that ate dinner together. So in the 80s, I grew up in the 80s, we all had family dinner because that's what the TV told us to do. It's a keystone habit. A few years back, uh, social scientists did this again, talking about the educational system. What is the keystone habit for long-term success for these kids that we're trying to raise up in the school system? And they determined that the most pivotal habit that kids could exude or practice or exist in to indicate long-term success was third grade reading level. And so all these programs started set, being set up in the school system to help empower and tutor and train kids in the third grade to be at or above reading level because what they found is that when you can read at eight years old, all your classes are easier at 9, 10, 11, and 12. Your confidence is higher. You're able to navigate the world in a better place, and you don't fall behind in all of these different places. And so third grade reading level became a keystone habit. It was one behavior or practice that unlocked the world for third graders and beyond. Now, the reason I bring that up today is not just to give you a life hack for New Year's resolutions, but in this series called Let's Go!, we're talking about a lot of behaviors and habits and practices that Christians can partake in to kind of go, move in their spiritual life in 2023, 2024. Last week I said 2021, so I'm making progress. 
So going to church is a practice, a spiritual habit that can have great results. Last week we talked about existing in community. That's a habit that can produce long-term results. Next week we'll talk about give, or serving the Lord and volunteerism and using our gifts. That's a habit. We'll talk about inviting people into the faith, inviting people to come along for the journey. That's a spiritual habit, a practice that can help us transform our lives this year as we walk in these various habits. And yet today, the reason I bring up this concept of keystone habit is because as I have studied the scriptures to prepare for this series, the one habit of all of the ones that we're talking about that God says will have the most pivotal impact on the rest of our lives is the habit that we talk about today, giving our finances to the Lord, which I'm sure is a topic that most of you weren't waking up today excited to hear about actually. And yet, I I believe that giving is a keystone habit. I believe it because that's what Jesus said in the New Testament. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This idea that our heart follows our treasure. It follows our money. And so if we change our practices and our beliefs and our behaviors around finances, it can actually transform our heart because Jesus says our heart will follow it. I see that in Malachi 3 that we'll read in a moment where the where God tells the people, return to me, turn your lives around, come back to me, repent, and be restored in your relationship with me. And they ask God, how will we return to you? And God answers, in tithes and offerings. It's a habit that you can do that will unlock your relationship with me for the first time. And so this morning we're going to talk about what the scriptures teach when it comes to giving. And there's a lot of tensions. You'll see if you're taking notes today, if you have the outline, we're going to hit two tensions that exist even in this text. But there's tensions that exist even in our hearts right now before we step into this text. Now, there are some of us in this room who have a hard time thinking about money at church because we've had a bad experience with money at church. I told you the story before about my aunt who was not a believer and yet started going to church and started loving it and went to the membership class. And after the membership class, an elder from the church knocked on her door and asked to see her tax return so he could help coach her on how much he should give to their mega church. That's what we call a bad experience when it comes to church and finance. And yet the tension on the other side of these things is part of the reason that our hearts get a little cringy when we start talking about money at church is because what Jesus said is true, that where our treasure is, our heart will be also. And so any time we talk about finance, even from the scriptures, we're going to be hitting some of the core parts of us that many of us feel like we shouldn't be talking about these things. We shouldn't talk about money, especially at church. And yet as I studied the scriptures to prepare for this sermon, I was reminded again that the scriptures talk about money a lot. You've heard that statistic that Jesus talked about money more than heaven and hell combined, more than prayer, more than faith. It was a a topic that he hit a lot because of the keystone aspect of finance and how connected with our heart it is. That's why his analogies were about money. His parables were about money. He had teaching about practices related to money, and he always brings it back to our heart And how our hearts are somehow connected to our our wallets. And so today what I want to do is is as simply as possible and as plainly as possible, lay out what the scriptures teach around finance and offering um, in the Bible. 
And the reason I want to do that is because these last couple years, as we've come out of the COVID season and seen tons of people coming to church, we've, we've determined that one of the biggest needs that our folks have in terms of discipleship is learning what the scriptures teach about money. And as I've talked to people who've been at church for a long time and who love giving money and they want to talk about it, how formative, a, a transformative a practice it's been for their lives, I ask them sometimes, Help me, how do I disciple and equip our church to understand what the scriptures teach better? And one of the most consistent pieces of feedback I get from folks who are on the other side of faithfulness and giving is they say, Danny, a lot of times when you at the church talk about money, you talk about the needs the church has, you talk about how inspirational it is to give, how beautiful it is to give, and, and all these amazing things about what God is doing through the offering that's collected, you say, but, but the one thing that I think we don't talk about very much is what God requires of us from the scripture. That the tension that they live in is that, that giving is a joy, but it's also an act of obedience to our Lord. And so they said, Danny, one of the times you talk about money, you've got to at least tell us what the scriptures teach God requires when it comes to financial stewardship. And so this is a, a topic that, that I'm actually excited to teach about. It's a, been a really formative practice in my own life. If you want to learn more, our podcast episode on giving comes out today or tomorrow. And you can listen to me and AJ hash up uh, this, chop up this topic on podcast. After the, the podcast time, AJ turned off the recorder and he said, Danny, you love this topic, don't you? I didn't know how to take that. <laughs> but I just said, I, said, I do. And, and I told him, and I was honest when I said this, I said, Giving has probably been the most transformative spiritual practice in my life to this day. Nothing has changed the culture of my family. Nothing has changed my spiritual life. Nothing has changed the trajectory of my life more than learning and leaning into what the scriptures teach around finance. And so I love this topic because it's changed. It's changed me deeply. And so my hope as we walk through this is that you'll hear my heart. And more than that, you'll hear what the scriptures teach when it comes to God and money from Malachi chapter 3. So if you've studied Malachi, you know this is like, this is the Mount Everest of giving in the scriptures, so we're just going right after it. So let's read together Malachi 3, 6 through 12. God speaks to the people through Malachi. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed. For yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Maybe you can already sense some of the tensions that we see in this passage. We start with, with God giving an invitation to his people. Return to me and I'll return to you. And, and they wrestle with it a little bit. And then God responds and says, when they ask, how will we return to you? He says, in your tithes and offerings. Which when you study the book of Malachi, is a little bit bonkers. 
because these people are engaged in some very detestable practices. Their clergy has gone corrupt. The priests are taking things from themselves and they're wandering, their hearts are wandering from the Lord. You see, the people have discarded their wives, just thrown their wives out on the street and are now marrying these women who are from these pagan nations and they're starting to worship these false gods. There's all types of chaos and sin and strife. And it's very fascinating to me that when God says, this is the first thing I want you to return to me in, He says, it's not go reconcile with your wives. It's not go tell your clergy to repent. It's not stop worshiping false gods. He says, bring the fullness of the tithe into the storehouse. Which brings up the first half of the first tension we see in the scriptures. Is that according to the scriptures, giving is a practice that will transform your life. Will transform your life. It's a keystone habit. God says, do this First, there's something about giving that unlocks transformation like no other practice can. And yet the other half of this tension, that giving is a practice that can transform your life, but also giving, as we see in this scripture, is a biblical command. A biblical command. This is the tension I mentioned earlier between the inspiration around giving And the command around giving, which God walks this tightrope throughout Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12. It's it's an invitation and it's a command from the Lord. There's a phrase that God uses in Malachi 3, and it's used all over the scriptures. The phrase is tithes and offerings. And so I thought, let's take some time to define these terms. What is tithing? What is offering? What do we see throughout the scriptures related to these topics? And like I said, we do a deeper dive even into this in our podcast this week. So if you want to hear about that, you can listen to that, that podcast episode. But if you're taking notes today, you can write this down. Tithing is surrendering the first 10% of your income to your local church. That's my 2024, Danny Strange, from the scriptures, definition of tithing. Surrendering your first 10% of income to your local church. Tithing is, throughout the scriptures, we see that this idea of offering your first fruits, that's part of what tithing is. It's a surrender of the first 10%, is, is the oldest spiritual practice in the Bible. After the Garden of Eden, when the people had to kind of figure out how to live life on this planet, Genesis chapter 4, the first story is a story of Cain and Abel trying to figure out how to honor God with their finances. And we see that Abel brings a portion from the fat of the firstborn of his flock, and Cain brings an offering from his harvest as well. And Somehow God looks favorably on Abel and his offering. He does not look favorably on Cain and his offering. And this keystone habit changes both of their lives forever. Cain rises up and kills Abel because Abel is favored by God because of what he does with his finances. And Cain's family steps into a generational curse because of his dishonoring God with his finance and how it unlocked sin and anger in his heart. It's a surrender of the first from the first story of the scriptures. You see, Abraham goes to Melchizedek, this king of a foreign nation, and he gives him a tenth of everything. It's a surrender of the first 10%. We see in the law, it, as God tells his people how to live in their covenant, his co- their covenant with him, he says, any time finances come in, surrender the first 10%, the first fruits. The word tithe literally means a tenth part, a 10%. And so tithe in the scripture is the basic unit of giving. There's some other times that God says, give a tithe of this, a tithe of that. It kind of becomes like this is a giving portion, a 10% portion. 
And we also see that tithe is a sacrifice and tithe is a surrender. You would literally come and bring your first 10% of your income to the priests and they would like light it on fire in front of you, right? It's a, it's a sacrifice of your resources and it's a, it's a remembrance that everything I have belongs to God and somehow God has woven into the fabric of humanity that the first 10%, he says, throughout the scriptures belongs to him. And so bring it here in Malachi. Bring the tithe into the storehouse, the fullness of it, that 10% I've allocated for myself. So that tithing is a sacrifice, tithing is a surrender. And yet I hear a lot of misconceptions around tithing that I thought would be good to kind of wrestle with as a, a community uh, here today. The first, I hear this all the time. People, people tell me, well, I, I, I don't tithe my money, I tithe my time. And so I don't give money to my church, I just, I volunteer at my church, and I try to pray for my church, and I use my time to honor the Lord. And, and when I hear that, I have to tell them, well, that, those are good things. We're going to talk about volunteerism next week, for example. But in the scriptures, tithing is always about money. Kind of like when people tell me they're fasting from video games. I'm like, that's a good thing. Fasting in the scriptures is almost always around food, though, right? It's like, well, I don't want to fast from food. It's like, well, that's probably why fasting is about food, right? You don't want to tithe your money. That's probably why tithing is about money, right? Because our hearts and our wallets are connected. So tithing is around money. And I talked to somebody a few months ago who said, well, I, I don't tithe anymore because my church doesn't need my money. And I was able to tell her, well, actually, she doesn't go to this church. I said, actually, I know the pastor of your church. They do need your money. <laughs> We've been praying about that. Um, but my real answer is this. It doesn't matter. It honestly doesn't matter. Your church could be totally rich, right? And, and yet tithing is not about meeting a need. It's about an act of surrender. Right? We look at the New Testament model in the book of Acts. And, and the people, as their hearts were given to Christ, they were compelled to give more. And they started liquidating their properties, selling their homes, and bringing all the money. And it says, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. This act of surrender. Like, this is for the Lord. Do with it whatever you would like. So whether or not you think your church, whether it's this church or another church, needs your money, I'll tell you two things. One, your church probably does. <laughs> but even if they didn't, right, or even because it, even though it does, that, that is not what tithing is. Tithing is surrendering your resources to your local church and trusting that they will be accountable to what they do with it. Right? It's up to them. They're going to stand before God. Whoever your church is, whether it's us or someone else, they're going to stand before God and have to give an account of how they stewarded the resources collected you're going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account of how you stewarded the resources entrusted to you. And so we give not because there's a need, although there normally is. We give because it's an act of surrender and sacrifice. We give our funds, not our time. I guess as well as our time. We give because it's an act of surrender. And the last misconception I hear, and this will take us into the next piece, is, is people tell me, well, I, I tithe, but I don't tithe to my church. I, I tithe to my favorite charity, or I tithe to my kid's tuition payment at college, or I, right? And, and I tell them, some of those things are not tithing, that's just a bill. Uh, but other of those things are good things. It's, it's not tithing, though, that's called offering, right? And so tithing is surrendering the first 10% of your gross income to the local church you're part of, right? So... Uh, whatever it is you, you see coming in on your paycheck, right? I even had a friend who was a pastor in the Central Valley, and at harvest season, a guy rolls up with a truckload of tomatoes. And he's like, I harvested my tomatoes. Here's the first 10% of them. And the church was like, thanks, man. 
Like we got a lot of tomatoes to figure out what to do with now, right? But that's most accurate from the scriptures. This, it came in before I even put it into my bank account or bring it to the vendor or the, to sell. I'm going to bring it to my church. And so that's what tithing is. And so what offering is, you could take, write notes if you could take, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Offering is an above and beyond financial investment in God's kingdom purposes. Above and beyond. You might hear us use that phrase, above and beyond, because in the scriptures we see this baseline of tithe, which is this part of my income belongs to the Lord. I just go right back to him with it. But then we see this practice throughout the scriptures of people leaning more and more in to giving more on top of that tithe for a lot of different reasons. Right? Whether it's through being compelled by the Spirit to give more, like in the book of Acts where they lay down all of their funds, Or even in the Old Testament, where God prescribes some offerings for specific purposes. And if folks were in sin, there was a sin atonement offering that they'd bring forth. If folks were in a season of thankfulness, they'd bring an offering of of thanksgiving. We did a series on Leviticus here at the church a number of years back. And I remember Pastor Larry, Larry saying the biggest learning he had from that series was that throughout the book of Leviticus, every time the people gathered, they brought some sort of gift to the Lord as part of their worship. Even if you were part of God's people in the, in the Old Testament covenant, every three years they would receive an offering, again, another 10% offering above and beyond their first 10% offering that was all saved to help the poor in their community. And so if you lived in the Old Covenant, you, you would actually give your first 10% in your tithe. Then you would reserve a second 10% for just having funds for any of these religious purposes you might need. And then a third 10% every three years would go in benevolence to the poor. And so prorated, that was like 23 and a third percent that folks would give of tithes and offerings above and beyond giving to God's kingdom purposes. You know, I mentioned before, this is one of the most formative practices in my own life and and I hesitated to, to share some of this with you because I am not the world's biggest giver, obviously, right? I, uh, we don't have unlimited resources. I've got six children. My wife is, stays home with those children. We don't have tons of money. But, but giving has been the practice in our life that has unlocked everything else. Right? When we got married, we, both of us, Jessica grew up in the church. I came to faith in high school. And both of us, since the moment we first got a job, we just knew the first 10% belongs to the Lord. And so tithing was part of our lives since the very beginning. And so that, that already formed us. When we had to look, what kind of apartment are we going to rent? We knew only 90% of our income was available for that apartment, right? We had to make those different types of choices. And then about 15 years ago in our marriage, we decided that, that we wanted to do more. And so part of our practice has been every year, let's increase, not our standard of living, but let's increase our standard of giving, and so it was 11% and 12% and 30% and 14%, right? And trying to ratchet up every year. And, and what happened over the last 15 years is a number of things. First, God provided for us, even though we had less money every year. Second, we started getting to a point that we had funds available to do good when we felt compelled to do so. Right? And so we, we started creating all these buckets, right? And one was called just straight generosity or ministry. One was called charity or missions. One was called benevolence. One was called uh, like religious worship experiences or something, right? And so every month, right, we tithe our first 10%, and then we throw money in these other buckets, so to speak. There's no real buckets in my house. Don't come rob me. But we throw a bucket money in this bucket, so to speak. And so as time progressed and those amounts going in those buckets got bigger and bigger, we started getting to a point that we realized that our giving affected the culture of our lives, where anytime someone had a need, we would go into the generosity bucket and we'd have money to, to give them. 
Anytime our kids said, hey, I want to go to this camp or this retreat or whatever with church, we'd say, well, let's look in that bucket. Yeah, there's money to do church stuff. Yeah, let's do it. Anytime someone would come to us and say, hey, we're planting a church. Could you support us? We'd look in the charity bucket and say, yes, and we'd support them. And as those buckets started getting drier, the next year would come and we'd give more money into those buckets. And so over time, like I said, our standard of living has not increased greatly, but our standard of giving has, and the culture of our family has changed. So now we just know as a family... Anytime we want to do good, there's money for that. Anytime there's a need in the community, there's money for that. Like our daughter yesterday said, I have a heart for homeless people. Can we make a bunch of bags of goods that we can give to homeless people on the streets? And we said, yes, go on Amazon, buy stuff. There's money for that. Because as our practices have changed around increasing our generosity, the things that we say yes to have changed. When our kids say, hey, can we go to Disneyland again? We say, there's no money for that. Because this money is allocated for other things that is actually more advantageous for our soul and for the world. And so that's just a little bit of a description of tithe as a baseline and offering as this lean in to investing above and beyond in God's kingdom purposes. And so there's a a chance this whole topic energizes you. I would guess that if it does, it's probably because you're already doing it. The studies show that only 5 to 10% of people tithe. And yet of those 5 to 10%, 10% people who tithe, 77% of tithers give way more than the tithe. It's like this habit that once you step into it, it like unlocks all these other things. And I, just from the people that I know, would not say that those who tithe are the rich people among us. These are the people who've understood God's invitation and command from the scriptures, and they found it such a blessing that now 77% of them go above and beyond even that. That's a a stat around the nation. Right here at our church, I have to believe it's similarly true. We've got a church of, you know, Christmas Eve, we had 4,000 people come to church. And we have about 200 people based on just kind of average household income that we would guess are tithing people. So that's 5%. And yet in order to make budget every year, we would actually need 600 tithing people, which means that that 3x is coming from the people who are already tithing, giving above and beyond, which is, is what we see. We have a huge disparity of people who give tons to the church and people who give none to the church. And so on one hand, right, that's a sad state of the United States today. But on the other hand, it's a bit of a testimony to those who've stepped over the line of tithing, have not right, stopped because it wasn't working for them, but they've catapulted into doing more and more and more, right? And that's one of the tensions of tithing. So let me give you the second tension from the text. And this one, this one's a little more stark. And let me just tell you, the conviction in this one is a little higher, but the inspiration is a little higher too, so the tension just escalates. And we'll just start with the, the convicting side. From this passage... What we learn is that what God says is that if you're not giving your first 10% to the Lord, God considers that stealing from him. That's the convicting point, right? And that's, that's what he says in Malachi chapter 3. Return to me, I'll return to you. How are, we are, how are we to return? And then God says this, will a mere mortal rob God, yet you robbed me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? I'm picturing like, Does God need money? Is he loan sharking? What's he supposed to use it for? Like, that's just a good question. How are we wrapping you? And God says this, in tithes and offerings, 
You're under a curse. Your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into my storehouse that there may be food in my house. God says, if you're not returning to him, what he says, that part of your income is mine. He says, you're, you're stealing from me. And we joke about it a little bit, like what does it mean to rob God? And I think the image that you need is not like God is trying to pay his bills and he needs you to pay so he can pay. That's not what he means. The image we see in the scriptures of how finances work with God and his people are that God is, he's the one who owns everything. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns your bank account, your home, your life. He owns it all. And yet we are God's money managers. We're his stewards. That's the word in the scriptures. And what that means is that God has given us the, the trust, the entrustment, that all of the resources in our hands we're going to use according to his will because they belong to him anyway. And so God says the first 10% goes directly back to me. The other 90%, use your brain, use your heart, listen to the spirit, and allocate those funds the way that I would command you to do that. And obviously you can take a living out of this, you can pay your bills with this, you can feed your kids with these funds, right? But all of your money belongs to the Lord, and God has given some parameters around how he wants that invested. So, but yet, so God says to us the same thing you would say to your money manager if you went and said, hey, how is my portfolio doing? And she said, oh, actually, I liquidated it and I bought myself a new house. You would say, you're robbing me. <laughs> that was my money. You're supposed to invest it for my purposes and take your cut out of it. And you took all of it for yourself, right? So this is the analogy God is, God is saying. You are robbing me. But then on the other half, he, he gives inspiration to us in this tension. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. If we don't give the first 10% to the Lord, God considers that stealing from him. But on the other side of this tension, you can write this down, put it on your outline, we'll put it on the screen is that when we do release the first 10% of our income to the Lord, God says we'll be richly blessed, richly blessed. God promises to richly provide if we honor him with our finances. Right, for some of you, this might bring up a lot of other red flags. I listened to a, a televangelist one time uh, who said anyone in credit card debt should call their ministry, rack up every, max out every credit card to the ministry, and then God promises to pay off all your debt. That is not true, and that is not good stewardship, and that is false teaching, and that is not what God's saying here, right? Even, we're careful, when he says, richly provide for you, he's not saying, I'm going to make you rich. He says, I'm going to provide for you richly. You hear how he describes it. He says, when you go to harvest from your trees, you'll see that the maximum amount of fruit is ripe. You'll see that when pests could come and devour lands, they doesn't devour yours. When you trust me with your finances, I will create this blessing over your life so that every nation of the world will look at the community called Israel in this context and say, those are a blessed people. Their God richly provides for them. And you go and ask them, what's your secret? And they say, well, all of it belongs to the Lord. We trust God with our finances, and he provides for us. God sets up this almost 
beautifully symbiotic relationship where it says, instead of you just grinding to make ends meet, invite me into the process. Honor me with your finances. Surrender your first 10% to me. Look for opportunities to invest in my kingdom and invite me not just into taking money from you, so to speak, but invite me into the blessing over your life as well. And I promise you, when you live your financial life in partnership with me, you will be living in the blessed life, not the cursed life anymore. God promises to richly provide if we honor him with our finances. So what do we do with this? I think for many of us in this room, what statistics statistics would say is that those of us who already give generously to the Lord are thinking right now, man, I want to do more. I want to support more missionaries. I want to give more to benevolence. I want to put money in the church building program. I want to support a church plant. I want to give to my neighbor. I want to help that single mom across the street. I want to give more. And there are others of us who are struggling in this tension of fear or condemnation or feeling like what God is asking me to do is just, it's impossible to do. And if that's you, what I hope that you'll see today is the tensions that exist in the scripture, that those feelings are real. Your heart is connected with your finances. And what God is saying throughout the scriptures from beginning to end is that he doesn't primarily want something from you. He wants something for you. He wants to free you from the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, but the love of money. He wants to free you from thinking that you have to provide for yourself. He wants to show you tangibly that when you honor him with what he entrusts to you, he will provide for you in amazing ways. He wants to transform your life through giving, which is a keystone habit. It's a keystone habit because God promises to richly provide if we honor him with our finances. My challenge for for all of us this year is one that's going to be between you and the Lord. I want to challenge you, if you've never stepped into tithing before, giving the first 10% of your gross income to your local church, as we see in the scriptures and in this sermon today, I want to challenge you to take that next step into tithing. If you're taking notes, you can write that down, that giving is a tangible act of faith where God promises to respond in blessing. So I'm inviting you to take a tangible act of faith and trust that God promises to respond with blessing. We made these little cards. They look like this. It says tithing commitment. And if it's actually in the book rack in front of you. It looks like this. You can grab it. doesn't mean you're actually doing it, but you can grab it just to look at it. It's okay. You take it home with you. You don't have to fill it out today. And if you flip it over on the back, it says I blank. That's like your first name or you can put in a pseudonym. Like we're not tracking this. This is just a commitment to the Lord. I first name commit to giving the first 10% of my income to my local church in 2024 And my challenge would be for you, if you're someone who does that already and you're like, I'm going around again, right? Just write your first name on this thing. Drop it in one of the offering boxes. We might even have some buckets on the way out. You could drop it in there. No one's going to call you. We don't know your number. We don't even know your last name, right? But what we're we're praying is that God would raise the, the practice of giving in our community and start to see some of these blessings fulfilled. That He says, when your community honors this, watch as I will release the storehouse of blessing on you as a people, and the nations will look on and say, that is a blessed people. They must have a mighty God. And so right now, like I said, we've got about 200 families in our church who are honoring God with their tithing specifically, we would guess. 
We'd love to see that move to 400 or even 600, that our budget would be made not by giant gifts in December from very generous people, as that's a beautiful thing to do, but we'd love to be a church that is funded the way the scriptures command, that, that all of us as a community come and release our first 10% to the Lord. Right, so no pressure, no one's going to know, no one's going to come after you, but we'll be talking about this for the next few months is whenever we receive our offering, we'll remind ourselves that, hey, if, if this is something God is asking you to step into, just write your first name, drop it in the offering plate. You don't have to do it every week, just do it once. But uh, if you want to learn more, you can scan that QR code. And, and just a, a caveat, right, if you're like, listen, I want to do more than tithing, awesome, right? You're, feel free to write that down on here and just say, hey, I'm all in, I'm going to do this too, great, Right? If for whatever reason you're at a spot where you're like, I can't, and we talk to people all the time who are like, hey, I would love to do this. My spouse will not let me do this. Man, I'm in a season right now. I just, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to step into this. I don't know if I could do 10, but I could do three, or I could do one, or I could do nine, or whatever it is. Right? Go before the Lord and commit to whatever you can commit to. And feel free to, if you want to write it down, you don't have to, but if you want to write down, hey, I'm going to do this instead, write that down instead. But we would love it. If more and more and more of us kind of caught the, the vision from the scriptures of, of what it means not to live under the rule of money, but what it means to live under the rule of the Lord. And this is a challenge that we feel like can move the needle for many of us. And I would guess that if you've never done this before and it's a big leap, that it's a scary leap. And, and I would tell you from my own experience, from the experiences of every single person I've ever talked to about tithing and from the scriptures, is that when you take this leap of faith, God meets us there and he provides for us in rich and beautiful ways. You know, a few months ago, I, I was talking to a woman in our church about this very topic. And, and she said, hey, when my husband and I got married, we went to a class, like a premarital class at our church. And one of the first topics that was covered was this idea of giving. And so we decided as a family as a new family, my husband and I, that from now on, we're just going to do it. We're going to bite the bullet, go from zero to 10% or whatever it was. We're just going to give the first 10% of our gross income to the local church. And I love, as she kind of unpacked what happened from there, just all the different blessings that she talked about. And it wasn't like, we got a new Mercedes, right? And then someone gave us a new mansion. She said, we were so humbled that when we stepped into obedience for what God commands, he continued to provide for us. Even though 10% of our income just disappeared in a sense, we still were able to pay our bills. We were still able to live. And, and God provided for us even above and beyond that in ways that were incomprehensible sometimes. And then what she said was as we got older and as our kids started growing up and as we started to continue in this practice with children and a family, we saw that this practice started changing the culture of our family unit. She said, we, my kids never had the new shoes, right? We never had the brand new Mercedes or the mansion. But, but our values as a, as a family changed. We valued giving. We valued the Lord. We started valuing church attendance more. Like they, it became this one habit in our lives that unlocked a culture for our family of, of holiness and reverence. And God has so richly provided for us that even at a financial level, we wouldn't go back if we could. It, it was the one... The one behavior that changed everything. It was a keystone habit. And so wherever that sits with you this week, or if you need some time to think about it, my, my challenge for you is, is to grab one of those little cards, make a little bookmark in your Bible, and spend some time this week and say, God, what are you inviting me into? And when God gives you the courage, the faith to step into this practice, just write your name on it, drop it in one of our boxes. Uh, sometime in the next few months, 
And we're praying as a church that God raises up more and more people who understand God's blessing and command as it revolves around this topic. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to continue in worship, and then we'll dismiss. Let's pray. Jesus, you tell us that where our treasure is, our heart will be also. Some of us have found where our heart is today as we've talked about our treasure. And some of us are sensing that our heart needs to be in a different place today as we talk about our treasure. We pray that in your grace and through your invitation, and even as we wrestle with your commands in the scriptures, that that you would show us what obedience to you looks like in this arena and that you give us the courage to step into it. For folks who are taking a first step into tithing for the first time in their lives, we pray that you would show up and richly provide for them in ways that changes everything about their lives forever. For folks who are on the fence, we pray that you would meet them in the midst of this week and, and show them what you have for them and what you're asking from them. And for folks who aren't ready, whether they're not ready to give their hearts to you as they stand outside the walls of faith or even in this issue, they're just holding on and not wanting to let go. We pray that you would meet them in your grace with your mercy in this time. Even that these curses you talk about that fall on us when we rob you, that you would hold those back. And in the way that you do, that, that you would draw them to yourself. Give them faith to trust you, even in small ways this week. Give them ways to show, to see that you are faithful. And we pray that you would invite them in so that whenever they do give, they would be in accordance with the scriptures that they're giving, not out of compulsion, but out of cheerfulness of heart. We pray that you would fill this church with men and women and kids who joyously, cheerfully surrender our resources to you as an act of worship because we know it's the best way to live and it's what you call us to do. We pray that you would guide us even as we're discerning this challenge before us. And that you would use us to change the world in new ways this year as we release our resources to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.